0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. If you'll take your Bibles and open them to Exodus chapter 26, our study of the Tabernacle resumes with the coverings of the tent of the congregation. This is a new lesson for us this evening, and as you expect from everything that we've discussed this far, we're about to learn more about how God put his son on display in the design of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a visual for Israel. They didn't have a Bible to read, at least not yet. Israel didn't have the written word of God. And you would expect um, that they wouldn't be able to know very much about God since they didn't have the written word. But what God did was to give them something else. He gave them pictures. He gave them visuals. And that's what the tabernacle is. Uh, Moses probably didn't, although he wrote the first five books of the Pentateuch, he probably didn't write very much of this down until the end of the wilderness journeys. And so God had to show Israel who he was in a different way. And so he did give them these pictures. Now, they didn't understand what all of the pictures meant, but without doubt, they did understand certain things. They, they understood the purpose of sacrifices. Uh, they knew about atonement. And they knew its purpose. And I think at the very least, they understood that the very specific instructions that God gave concerning the building of the tabernacle uh, would have something to do with God's character and then they also believed in God's sovereignty. And whether they understood everything that was going on in the tabernacle, they certainly did know this. They were to obey and do what God said. Now The tabernacle teaches that man is insignificant. This is God who shows himself, not them. This, you might say, is God's selfie, not theirs. Uh, these are types and figures of what he would do, not what they would do. And they were completely Dependent upon the mercy and the grace of God, and that was a fact that was so apparent they couldn't miss it. Uh, Israel was a vast number of people as they wandered through the wilderness, and this was an area that couldn't support that great population for more than two days, much less 40 years. And so that was, of course, a very good indication that God was with them. But more than just miracles they saw, and, and as you read through uh, these, these early books of the Bible, you do find so many miracles there that God did among Israel. But aside from the fact that their miracles are done, they have this picture, they have this tent, they have the tabernacle where just God shows up there in a cloud That stands over the Holy of Holies, as you see in the the picture that we have up here. God in a cloud in the daytime. God in a fire at night. And that was a visual representation of God with them. And the hazy part of their understandings and all of these things that are in the tabernacle wouldn't come to full fruition until Christ came. And then it would all be opened up and we could understand it better but as they looked at it in their time, looking forward into the future, they couldn't look at the future with precision in these pictures that God gave. But here we are now; we have the Word of God, and so we can read these things and we can get a more, uh, a more, uh, a better, uh, a better picture, I should say, of, of a more perfect picture of Christ and His work. Now, in our study of the tabernacle, we've we've yet to step on the inside. And seeing what we've learned about the outside of it uh, makes us wonder with great anticipation, I think, how beautiful that the tabernacle must be on the inside. And we've discussed the things on the outside. We've talked about foundations and framework and the linen fence and the brazen altar, the brazen laver, and so on. And each of those was designed to show us something about Christ. Now, this afternoon, we come to the coverings that went over the tabernacle structure The framework of boards, these wooden boards that were overlaid with gold, had to have something to to close it in, something to protect the furnishings that were on the inside, and to keep everyone out and keep people from seeing the inside until Christ fulfilled the purpose for which all of these are made. Now, if you'll show us the the picture there, uh, Joshua, uh, these are the coverings of the tabernacle as they're laid back, and whether this picture is completely accurate, we'll have to discuss a little bit later. You, you may remember that the outer covering was a subject of discussion a few few months ago and, and we took a look, closer look at that and we will that, do that again when we come to that part. Um, and so you see the curtains pulled back and, and, and you see uh, just barely there in the bottom of the picture, the, the boards uncovered, the end of one of the bars uncovered, you see the silver foundation, And all of those things we've talked about thus far. But our subject tonight is these coverings that go on the outside. So if you'll look in your Bibles at Exodus chapter 26, we'll begin reading at verse number 1. This is the instructions for the coverings that go over the tabernacle. Exodus 26 verse number 1. Moreover, thou shalt make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen, and blue and purple and scarlet, With cherubims of cunning work shalt thou make them. The length of one curtain shall be eight and twenty cubits, and the breadth of one curtain four cubits, and every one of the curtains shall have one measure. The five curtains shall be coupled together one to another, and other five curtains shall be coupled one to another. And thou shalt make loops of blue upon the edge of one curtain from the selvage in the coupling, and likewise shalt thou make in the uttermost edge of another curtain in the coupling of the second. Fifty loops shalt thou make in the one curtain, and fifty loops shalt thou make in the edge of the curtain that is in the coupling of the second, that the loops may take hold one of another. And thou shalt make fifty tashes of gold, and couple the curtains together with the tashes, and it shall be one tabernacle. Now, are you with me? You understand every bit of that. I know you do. Uh, Very clear, isn't it? Verse number seven, "...and thou shalt make curtains of goat's hair to be a covering upon the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shalt thou make. The length of one curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of one curtain four cubits, and the eleven curtains shall be all of one measure." And thou shalt couple five curtains by themselves, and six curtains by themselves, and shalt double the sixth curtain in the forefront of the tabernacle. And thou shalt make fifty loops on the edge of one curtain, that is outmost in the coupling, and fifty loops in the edge of the curtain, which is uh, which coupleth the second. And thou shalt make fifty tashes of brass, and put the tashes into the loops, and couple the tent together, that it may be one." And the remnant that remaineth of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remaineth, shall hang over the back side of the tabernacle. And a cubit on the one side and a cubit on the other side of that which remaineth in the length of the curtains of the tent, it shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. And thou shalt make a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering above of badger skins." I've often wondered when the translators took the Hebrew scriptures and translated them uh, into English if they understood what they were writing, if they understood what they're translating, and it seems to be hard as we read this and very difficult for us to understand. And so, if we go over it very slowly, it kind it kind of comes together. And um, if you have the aid of a commentary, that will usually make it a little clearer. So the translators, though, of the King James knew and understood the English in which they were writing. Now, unfortunately, though, the King James uh, language gets in our way as we read this, and that's not a criticism of the King James. It's just the reality that we kind of get twisted up in, in the sentence structure of it, and um, it's not quite the way that we normally speak, and so it can be confusing to it uh, to us. So if you look at the pictures that we provide, And and if I were to ask you, I'll show you that picture right there, and I say, explain that to me. I mean, in your own words, tell me what you see there. I don't think any of you would come up with what's written here in King James language here in the 26th chapter of Exodus, because all of that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. So really what we need to do is rather than just go through line by line and try to decipher all of this, I think it's a little bit better for us to look at the big picture here, and what is it that God wants to show us in these coverings that go on top of the tabernacle? And, and if I put it in my own words, I would say, well, these are just a series of tarps. A series of tarps that are thrown over this structure, and that's the thing that, that uh, covers it all up and keeps everything dry on the inside and keeps uh, people in, animals out, and things like that. So there are four of these coverings. Each of them are made of several pieces that are attached one to the other and uh, put all that together, and each one of them makes a covering that goes the entire length of the tabernacle, hangs over the sides and over the back of the entire structure. And uh, that's necessary. Uh, I suppose that breaking the these tarps, so to speak, up into different sections makes it so much easier to transport because one big, long tarp would have been very, very heavy for them to cover and pack around and, and get set up. So what God designed for them to do was to take ten of these, ten, 10 sections of each one, and they put these loops around it, and, and they coupled it with these, these loops and fastened it all together to get one of these tarps that would run the full length of the tabernacle. So all of this is put together, and in it comes out a story of Jesus Christ. There are four coverings, and they are diverse because each one of them has something to say about the person of Jesus Christ. Now, one thing we know is that God doesn't do things haphazardly. Everything that he does is very carefully planned. God orchestrates, and he does all of this to reach the desired intent. So if I could if I could compare this entire structure to one thing, I would say that it best parallels the Word of God. Yet there's not one sentence in God's Word that's put there without reason and meaning. The Scriptures come from the Holy Spirit of God who inspired men to write them. And we might not understand all that God said, but we know that the Almighty God, who spoke in few words, never wasted any. So everything that He says is important for us to learn. But as you're reading through the Bible... You probably don't think that everything that you read is all that important for you to learn because you'll come to places like in numbers and you'll start reading all of these, these figures and so forth and all of these names that are written in numbers and you come there and you say, wow, that's, that's just terribly boring. I don't want to, I don't want to read this particular part of the scripture. There are people who come to these these verses in Exodus, preachers who come to this and they say, well, that's not really worth studying. That's a lot of confusion there. So let's don't look at that. It's not really all that important. And I confess to you that when I read the scriptures, when I'm reading through the Bible, I'll come to certain parts and I'll say, you know, that, that that's just kind of boring. Why don't we just kind of skip over this? And you might not understand what all of that's about and I might not understand it but there are some people who do understand it. There are people who make, uh, make it their quest, you might say, to be scholars on the boring parts of the Bible. Things that are very difficult to understand, the, the names that are in numbers, the things that take place in, in, in uh, certain scriptures, they, they, they study those things and they learn those things and, and you wonder, why does anybody want to study the boring parts? Well, it turns out, that there's a lot to know in the boring parts. A lot of things that God wants us to know is because I said God doesn't waste words. So I can't, uh, I can't understand it all. You don't understand it all. But there, there are some parts that we can reason out because they're more obvious. And I'm sure that there are times in this study that some of you that might have at other times skipped over things like this, that you've had an aha moment. And you say... Well, that makes good sense now that you point it out. Now I see that. Now I understand it. And, of course, you've learned something more about Jesus Christ. So God has a purpose in every word. And it's interesting when you discover the purpose in things that you took no thought of before. And when you begin to learn that here is a picture of Jesus Christ who is the living word, then surely if you're a child of God, you've got to find interest in that. I mean, you've got to take interest when God is showing us pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are four coverings of the tabernacle. Each of them is significant, and each of them is a subject of this part of our study. Now, the message I've titled, or these messages on this part are titled, The Coverings, A Photo Album. In a photo album, you find pictures. If you're taking notes, you probably didn't need to write that part down, I am a master of the obvious at times, that part you can easily understand. But this, this photo album of the tabernacle is unlike any that you have at home. And that's because this is filled with pictures of the Savior. Now, beginning in order of the coverings, the, the one that goes on first is a covering that is made of fine twine linen. And this is a picture of Christ's holiness and righteousness, Exodus twenty-six, verse number one. Moreover, thou shalt make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen, and blue and purple and scarlet. With cherubims of cunning work shalt thou make them. Now, notice the colors. Uh, here again, we see these these colors. These are always in the exact order as we have them here. Every time we read about these colors in the tabernacle, always this order: blue, purple, and scarlet. And the use of the colors is very significant because this first covering that goes over the tabernacle is simply an exquisite piece of art. They made ten of these, sewn together, fine twine linen. There are ten pieces, they're coupled together, and they make up this one large piece that forms the ceiling of the tabernacle. In other words, this is what the priest would see when he went on the inside woven into this covering of blue, purple, and scarlet, uh, uh, these beautiful colors. Nobody, has, nobody could see it from the outside because you have those other coverings that are over it. The other tarps cover it up. And so you have to be on the inside of the tabernacle to see this beauty. And if you think about what we've learned before, you understand the significance of it. Now, I want us to see first that this embroidery pictures Christ's beauty. Now, the colors of construction have been explored several times in the study. White stands for the righteousness of Christ. Purple is for his royalty. Blue stands for his heavenly character. And scarlet is for the blood of the sacrifice. And this, the, these colors, again, on this underlying curtain, uh, can be seen only by a person who's on the inside. And to be on the inside, you certainly have to be a person with distinct privileges, Because the only person that can go inside of the tabernacle is the priest. And he is the representative of the people. So would you think that that requirement would keep you out? Well, it seems that it does. But when Christ came, he, he redeemed us. And the scripture says that he made us kings and priests. And he gave us access to get on the inside to see the beauties of Jesus Christ. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 2. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this is what God does to every believer. In this dispensation, when we trust Christ, we all become royal priests. We have permission to view Christ from the inside. And that is a privilege that's granted only by faith in Christ. Only by being made holy in him and receiving the imputation of his perfect righteousness can we really understand and see what Christ is on the inside. And so the real beauty of Christ can be seen only by those who know him personally. Now, to most people, when you talk about Jesus, you're, you're really not doing anything more than just speaking of an historical figure. He's just somebody who lived in the past. And oh sure, they're going to admit that his teachings were profound. And and they'll say his example was stellar. We ought to live like Jesus. And they'll say his compassion was legendary. And they all say, oh yes, he gave some very good principles to live by. But none of that has any personal meaning to them. They relate only to a person in history, just this person, just like they do any other historical figure. So they're not compelled to live as Christ lived because they don't have a relationship with Him. Of course, that relationship that we have is founded upon His supreme love. It flows to us in such a way that it causes us to love Him and to desire to live by the principles that Christ gave, not just to talk about them and how good they are. Now, the Scripture says... That we love him because he first loved us. And we might do very well to note the pronoun us. Christ loved us. And it can't be denied that that us makes a profound difference in a certain group of people. Now to us, Jesus means more than George Washington. He means more than Abraham Lincoln. To us, the words of Christ are not just inspiring words as... Abraham Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address. Those words that those men speak don't grip the heart. There's nothing in there that that would change what I think about myself. There's nothing there that changes what I think about God and about my sin. But the words of Christ are different. They're words that are so profound that they have the power to change my inner being. Jeremiah asked, can an Ethiopian change his skin? Can a leopard change his spots? We can't do anything to change what we are by nature, but friends, Jesus can. His words have the power to make us different than what we were before. Now, there isn't anyone in history, there's nothing in history that can touch me on a deep spiritual level like Jesus. And that's the thing that the world doesn't understand. They can't see that Because they've never been on the inside. And so the people of the world today are just like Moabites and Canaanites who come down and view the tabernacle from the outside, and they don't know anything about the God of Israel who's on the inside. I was recently reading the story of Eli and what happened to him when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, and the Philistines had no clue what the Ark was, and remarkably, even Israel didn't know what the ark was at that time. They went in and they fetched it out of the tabernacle and they used it like an amulet to ward off evil. And they were superstitious about it, thinking that the ark and its presence was magical and guaranteed their protection. And that's not who God is. They didn't understand who God is. Now, Moabites and and Canaanites certainly saw something that was very peculiar about Israel's God. They fought about the symbols and... And the drab tabernacle on the outside, and they look at that and say, oh, that's very peculiar for a place of worship. Remember how we talked about that a couple, three weeks ago, that the heathen temples were very ornate, beautiful places. And they look at Israel's tabernacle, and they think, well, that sure is a strange thing. It's a little bit out of the ordinary. But they don't see anything really that made Israel different from them. And isn't that something? I mean, you and I... Our people, just like everybody else, uh, we might appear a little bit strange to others sometimes, but we mix and mingle with them. We we go to work with them, we go to the mall with them, we're in public places with them. And they have no clue how much different we really are on the inside. They don't know what's happened to us on the inside. Nobody knows who Jesus is. Nobody knows what our devotion to him is like until they get on the inside. And they wonder, what is it that makes you turn from from the sins that you once enjoyed, all the pleasures that you used to join with us in? What happened to all that? Why are you different now? They, they don't know. Not until the Holy Spirit grips their heart and turns them inside out do they understand what we know. Now the scripture says that this understanding that we receive is not by our power. It is not by our will. It's revealed by the Holy Spirit who gives us the power to become the sons of God. Now in the old dispensation under the old covenant, nobody could get on the inside to see the tabernacle. Nobody could see this covering that we're talking about or anything else that's in there except a priest. But in the new dispensation, in the new covenant, we're made that royal priesthood to have all the privileges to see Christ on the inside. Now, that's first. There's this beautiful tapestry there. There's the blue and the purple and the scarlet. These interwoven colors that are just magnificent. But there's something else there as well. Now, another fascinating aspect of this this first covering that goes on is that there are cherubim that are woven into the fabric. And the cherubim picture Christ's character. Now, I say that cherubim are fascinating Cherubim are supernatural, angelic creatures. Now, you can hardly find a person who isn't intensely interested in angels. Now, probably most of the time the the fascination is misdirected and we become too enamored with things that we shouldn't. And so there are many misunderstandings about angels. But cherubim are a peculiar creation of God. And we have a description of them in Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, I'd like you to turn your Bible to Ezekiel 1, and we're going to read Ezekiel's vision of these very strange creatures. Uh, This is the first chapter, and uh, by the way, I'll tell you that if you read the entire first chapter of Ezekiel, this is one of the hardest places of Scripture to understand. If you get all the way down to verse number 15 and go on to the end of the chapter, I mean, just read that sometime and see what you come up with. I've heard the bizarre that's been taught from this passage. There are some who say, well, this is a description of an alien spacecraft. And they say, Ezekiel is describing a flying saucer. And it jets and it darts and it changes direction as it overcomes the laws of inertia. And I say, well, yeah, that sure is fascinating, but I don't think that I'm going to go with a UFO here in Ezekiel 1. Now, we're going to read uh, some here. We're not going to read down to verse 15 and beyond, but we are going to start at verse number 4. It's what Ezekiel saw. And I looked... And behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it. And out of the midst thereof, as the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire, also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and every one had four faces, and every one had four wings, and their feet were straight feet. And the sole of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. And they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides, and they four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. They went, every one, straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man... And the face of a lion on the right side. And they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another and two covered their bodies. But well, what did Ezekiel see? Well, it doesn't say what they were. There is a description of living creatures, it says, but it doesn't name what they are. And so to find out what they are, we have to go to chapter 10. You don't know when to worry about turning there. I'm going to read it to you. Ezekiel 10, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubims, there appeared over them as it were a sapphire stone, as the appearance of the likeness of a throne. So in the first chapter, it says living creatures. And then in chapter 10, Ezekiel says these living creatures are cherubim. They're a very special type of of angels and then we would have to ask well why would these angels be sewn into the fabric of the ceiling of the tabernacle and it's a great picture for us because cherubim are often associated with the holiness of god they've been called the guardians of holiness cherubim are in god's throne room and then in the tabernacle we'll also see them later on uh, on the ark of the covenant that's kept in the holy of holies Well, in Ezekiel's description, he said that each of the cherubim have four faces. What does a face do? I think we could say a face identifies us. A face is an indicator that you are a person. It doesn't make you a person, but if someone were to mention your name and you're not in the room, someone mentions your name, then what immediately comes to their mind? Well, your face comes to their mind. They know who... Who, uh, the, the person knows who they're talking about. They're talking about you, and the face comes to the mind. Well, what, what do these cherubim look like? Well, verse 10 in Ezekiel 1, As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. Now, that's strange, isn't it? They each have four faces, and I wish that some of you had four faces, because there'd be a much better chance at least one of them would be good-looking for me just to look out here. But they have four faces. Four faces, we think, now that's grotesque. That's grotesque. Four faces on this creature? Well, we're not used to seeing that, not, not four faces. Uh, but I don't think that Ezekiel thought they were grotesque. Instead, what he sees is a sense of of majesty, because these are creatures that are associated with the holy God. And importantly, each of these faces on the creatures reveals something about the person of Jesus Christ. Now, first it says that they have the face of a man. That's not really hard for us to figure. Uh, The face of a man, that is a picture of Christ and his humanity. He is God. He's the holy God, but he is... God who condescended to become human flesh. So what we have here in, in, in this cherubim that's sewn into the top of the tabernacle is a picture of the incarnation. Now that, that's, that's a miracle on many levels, not the least of which is how the infinite God got himself into the body of a man. But perhaps even more miraculous is that he would even want to become a human. And you know the answer to that, you know why God did it. He's 100% God, He's 100% man, He's God so that He can save us from our sins, He's God to preserve perfection, He's God to suffer infinitely, but He's man, He is man in order to earn an alien righteousness that He can give to us. Now, I cautiously use that word alien because I'm not referring to the spaceship theory in Ezekiel chapter 1. Not that kind of an alien. When we say an alien righteousness, we mean a righteousness that is outside of us. That we must be given righteousness that comes from the outside of us. And that's because our righteousness will not do. So we need an alien righteousness, a righteousness given to us by someone else that's that's exterior to us. So... What Christ did was to become a man to experience all of the temptations that we go through. He became a man to sympathize with us or succor us. That's the King James word. He became a man to sympathize, to succor. He became man because God can't die. And this is just a A marvelous thing that in the tabernacle, in Ezekiel's vision in the temple long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there is a human face on a cherub that pictures this miraculous event of the future when Christ came in the incarnation. Isn't that amazing how that God figures things out? God God has all of this plan. So the priest walked into the tabernacle and looking down on him from above is God as a man. The man on this angelic creature, the face of a man, inhabits the throne room of the Holy God. And he probably didn't understand that very well. I'm sure that he didn't. But there's something here that tells him that God has a relationship with man. And that is a relationship that is totally controlled by him. Now, next, each cherub had the face of a lion. Now, what is a lion? Well, you know what a lion is. Think of a lion, we always think of a, a very fierce animal. You remember the men that accused Daniel? King Darius had them thrown into the lion's den and, and uh, before they ever touched the ground, the Bible says the lions had already devoured them. Lions are fierce. That fierceness makes the lion known as the king of the jungle. He's the king of beasts. So Christ is seen as a lion, to picture his kingship. We get this from the lion of the tribe of Judah. Where does that image come from? Well, it comes from the blessing that Jacob put on his son Judah. This is in Genesis 49, beginning in verse 8. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now there you see Judah is a lion's whelp. And it says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. He is the lawgiver. The scepter the, is the authority of law. And that's all about kingship. It's all about ruling. He is the ruler. Isaiah said the government shall be upon his shoulder. And here's an interesting uh, piece of information about the marching formation of Israel. Whenever they moved from place to place, it was Judah that was the tribe that was up front. It was Judah the tribe that always led. And that's because Judah is the tribe from where the kings would come. Judah has the power and the authority of kings. And this is a natural thing. The king would come from Judah. And so kingship is represented by the lions on the face of the, of the cherubim. When Solomon built his palace, this is one of the things he put in the throne room. He put in lions. 1st King chapter 10. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with the best gold. The throne had six steps, and the top of the throne was round behind, and there were stays on either side on the place of the seat, and two lions stood beside the stays. And twelve lions stood there on the one side and on the other upon the six steps. There was not the like made in any kingdom. Folks, that's kingship. What Solomon wanted to show was authority. He is the king. And so the priest looked overhead as he walked into the tabernacle and there is the face of a lion. And that tells us that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings. And then there is a third face. The third face is the face of an ox. And of the four faces, this is the one that seems the most likely, least likely, I should say. This is is the face that really doesn't seem to fit. This is the most perplexing picture that we have of the Messiah. Now, we know that the ox was a suitable animal for sacrifice. Go back here and Read in other parts of Exodus where it describes which animals can be used for sacrifice. It's the ox that fits in, and the ox is often used as an animal of sacrifice. And I think that we could make a good case that that's what the picture is here. But I don't think if we did, we have the full picture. The picture becomes perplexing because the ox is a beast of burden. An ox is harnessed in order to serve man. An ox is the servant. Of another, In other words, the ox is beneath the one that he serves. And this is what Christ did. He became a man. And if he should choose to become a man, we think, well, if he did, then he would come as a wealthy man. And, and we think, well, no, he would come, he would also come as a very famous man. We think that he would be a very shrewd, worldly wise man, or we think that he would be a socialite, or we think that he would be a politician and he would have political rule. But we hardly think that Christ would come and choose to be a slave. We don't think that he would come without a place to call his home. We don't think that he would come and mix and mingle with publicans and sinners. And we don't think that he would do the lowliest task of any servant, and that is to bend down and wash smelly feet. And neither do we, do we think that he would tell anyone that to be great they first had to humble themselves and become a servant. This is what he said in Mark 10, And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And we look at that and we say, well, none of that computes. It really doesn't make sense. And yet, that, that's what Christ did. He was a beast of burden. Voluntarily, he was brought low from the highest glory in heaven to the lowest man on earth, suffering and dying with criminals. We don't write these kinds of stories. This is not the way that we write to make it be interesting and come out like it's supposed to. But that's the way that God does. That's the way He does it. And as beautiful and as glorious as the tabernacle was, all of a sudden we come upon this piece. God became a servant. And that's the piece of the puzzle that doesn't seem to fit. And yet we have Christ at the slaughter, we have Christ at death's door, we have Christ brought low to the suffering and death of the ignominious, and that is seen, felt, folks, every single day in sacrifices. Did the priest see that when he went into the tabernacle and looked up and saw cherubim? And then lastly, there is the face of an eagle. Why did the cherubim have a face of an eagle? Eagles are majestic birds. The bald eagle has long been a symbol of freedom and majesty in America. An eagle is a very powerful bird. Years ago, um, I took our kids on a ski trip to Colorado. We were traveling on a two-lane highway in Utah, and as usual, I was within about 20 miles of the speed limit, and you can figure out which side of that I was on, but uh, within about 20 miles of it. And I was I was really going fast and I came up over this rise in the road and in the middle of the road there was this huge, and I mean a huge, golden eagle that was feeding on something in the middle of the roadway. And I popped up over there and I was flying and that eagle was so big and so heavy that he couldn't lift himself quickly enough to get out of the way. And so he just raised up and I caught him about the top of the windshield and killed him dead. Well, you don't usually see an eagle that way. You're not going to catch an eagle that way. Where do you see an eagle? Well, you see him in the sky. He's soaring high in the sky, and, and birds like eagles, falcons, hawks, and so on, they have this incredible eyesight. So as they look down, they see a little, a little mouse scurrying along the ground, or a chipmunk, or something like that. And from that lofty perch, or from where they are up in the sky, they swoop down, and they grab their prey. Well, in this case, the eagle eye is a symbol that God sees everything. There's nothing that escapes his attention. He is the omniscient God. He knows all because he plans all. In, in Acts 15:18, James said, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. How does God know all of his works from the beginning of the world except that he plans all of his works from the beginning of the world? Is there anything that God doesn't know? You know, there's some people say, well, does God know who will be saved? And my answer to that is, well, is salvation one of God's works? Then we have the answer, don't we? Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. God knows it because he planned it. Now, an interesting thought here in circumventing confusion about God's election you know people don't like election and you think well why I mean why wouldn't you like it Um, there really isn't a need to get rid of it because God's knowledge from the very beginning of the world fixes the salvation of any sinner even without election I mean the numbers of people that will be saved or lost cannot be increased or diminished simply because God's foreknowledge has already established it But the Bible goes beyond the foreknowledge part of that. It goes further that God knows because He determined what would happen. Things don't happen because God knows that they will happen. Things happen because God planned them to happen. In fact, the word foreknowledge that's translated in the Scripture actually means foreordained. And so Luke uh, could write in Acts 13.48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. God planned the salvation of sinners. Now, it takes some really fancy footwork and stepping in wrong places to eliminate the election of God's people from the Scriptures. And I could go on with that. People that deny election, deny omniscience, they deny immutability, they deny depravity, they deny sovereignty, and they just stand there in a mud puddle of theological confusion. And what they do is they make a horrible mess of the tabernacle and these pictures. Have you ever seen pictures where somebody pokes out the eyes? I saw a cutout of a person at Walmart a few weeks ago. Yes, I do go to Walmart. And, and, I, and I went into Walmart and there was a cutout there that somebody had poked out the eyes on this, on this cutout. And uh, I don't know, any, any of you have, uh, have any photo albums at home where you poke the eyes out? That's what people do when they deny the omniscience of election. They walk into the tabernacle and they look up at the cherubim they reach up there with a the pole and poke the eyes out of the cherubim. He doesn't see all. They say. God doesn't know all. They say. Oh, yes, he does. Now, here's another thought about the cherubim. My last thought. They have wings. Angels have wings. A matter of fact, cherubim have more than one wing. They've got several sets of wings, some sets of wings. But what do these wings symbolize? Well, the scriptures are very helpful on this. Psalm 61, verse 4 says, I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings, Selah. Psalm 17, 8, keep me as the apple of the eye, hide me under the shadow of thy wings. Psalm 91, verse 4, he shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. It's a marvelous picture. Jesus said to the hard-hearted people of Jerusalem, "O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. The wings, that is a picture of the protection of God, the protection of Jesus Christ. He covers us with his wings. You know the song, under his wings, under his wings, who from his love can sever... Under his wings my soul shall abide, safely abide forever. And so when the priest came into the tabernacle, he came under the picture of cherubim that are above his head. And that is a powerful picture of the many faces of Jesus Christ. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now thanking you for... Our study tonight in the tabernacle, these pictures that we've seen of your blessed Son, Jesus Christ, the protection that we have, the righteousness that we have because of Him. Everything that we have comes through the power and might of Jesus Christ in the salvation of our souls. We have nothing and we are nothing without Him. We thank you, Lord, for what we learn and help us as we. As we study the Bible, not to get bored with things that we don't understand, but take time to research, look at it, figure these things out according to what's revealed in your Holy Word, and help us to understand Jesus Christ in a better way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronit Park, California. If you would like further information about our church,